I'm ranking Beatles songs. I'm ranking Beatles songs. Ranking Beatles songs. Ranking Beatles songs. Dunk, dunk, dunk. Ranking Beatles songs. Dunk. Oh, I totally watched it. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We were like, we were, it was rocking though. It was, I dug it. Yeah. I liked it. Okay. I had fun with it. Guys, I'm not a musician. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I thought it was great. You did okay. a wonderful job. Thank you. Welcome to Ranking the Beatles, episode numero 20. How about that? <laughs> I like how you just leave. You're like, numero, and you're like, nah. You know I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> it's our 20th episode, yes, guys. Very exciting. That, that, I mean, heck, who knew? Look at us now. How about that? <laughs> I mean, I knew, because... I committed to doing this. So. <laughs> we knew. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, hello, beautiful Beatle people. Uh, welcome to the show. My name is Jonathan. And I'm Julia, I'm your a... musically not talented co-host. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's harsh. Don't give yourself such a bad rap. I think it's adorable. I mean, you think it's cute because you really like me and you married me. Valid. I don't know that everyone else out there listening is going to find it so cute. Well, it is what it is. It's what we do. Welcome to the show. We do these silly little songs. Deal with it. Yeah. Welcome to our Saturday morning in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> also true. But I uh, hope everyone is having a good week this second to last week of October as we, uh, as we are taping today. Um, it's been a crazy week. Uh, for Beatles fans, exciting things this week. McCartney 3 was announced this week. Um, I'm sure if you're listening, you've probably pre-ordered one, if not multiple copies of all the varieties of vinyl that are available. I've ordered all 12. Did you really now? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, think about what you have accomplished over the last uh, nine months that we've been in quarantine. And then... Um, Realize it wasn't all that much because you didn't make a record at 78 years old by yourself. You know what? That's, now, you know, uh, that, that's, that's very unfair. That he is unfair. Like I'm not going to. I shouldn't staff. say that. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, he says he did it by himself. I don't know. I mean, I, like, there was an engineer but there. But like for his least. life. There was a photographer like, and a Like, do you think Paul McCartney's cooking dinner for himself every night? Absolutely not. Probably. Well, you know. <laughs> no. I bet he's a little more down home than we than we would think. I mean, maybe like once a week he cooks because it's like funsies for him, but he's not like... Meatless Mondays and funsies Fridays. Right. He's not like slogging through a week at his work from home job and then like, <laughs> you know, walking a mile to his kitchen because that's how big his house is, I'm sure. Throwing um, some stuff in the Instant Pot. Right. <laughs> Moving like, on. He's, th that's not his life. So like he had the 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 brain power, the... You are yeah. right. You're right. He had the wherewithal, the bandwidth, the staff, the bandwidth to uh, the studio be creative. Whereas yeah. most people are just like, I, I survived today. <laughs> I'm going to pat myself true. on the back for that. That is true. So don't beat yourself it, up, friends. You don't beat yourself up. It, 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 everyone's on a different path, a different adventure. Um, but I got to say at 78 years old for him to put out another record. It's uh, it's commendable. Uh, I found this really interesting quote the other day from the November 1966 issue of Beatles Book Monthly, Ooh. where Paul says, uh, quote, being a Beatle is not that big a part of life. There's lots more things for us to do. Take touring, for example. We'd hate to be touring when we're 35 because we'd look silly, <laughs> which Yikes. is amazing because we just saw him last year at 77 years old. Yeah. Um, uh, and he goes, you know. Can't you see it? They'll have us. They'll be asking us to shake our hair, and we'd have to say we can't because we've got a bald patch. Everyone has to get old. It's just that a lot of people don't adapt themselves and do exactly the same as they did at twenty, even though they're about forty. But here he is at seventy-eight, putting out the third McCartney album. 
With a pretty fantastic mane of hair, might yeah. I say. I, I got to say, I like that he's gone to the gray and yeah. just let it go au naturel. I think he looks effortlessly cool. I mean, yeah, like gray hair has come a long way. Yeah. it's It's always been easier for men. But now, you know, I've got a quite a bit of gray. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> and um, I've talked to a few friends like during quarantine because like you can't go to a salon and get your hair done or anything. So I've talked to a few friends and they're like, what do I do? Do I dye it at home? And I'm like, just let it go. Who cares? It's hair. Like embrace it. Love it. You look amazing regardless. Just like. Let it go gray. It's going to be beautiful. And they all look amazing. I'm super proud of them. And it's one less thing that we have yeah. to worry about, which is so great. You know, it's interesting. Back when the Beatles first started and Ringo joined, he had this kind of like shock of gray hair on the side of his hair that they were at first. They, they, they just combed it forward. And I think at some point he has to have started dying it mm. at, at when he was younger because it just was never there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, then it reappears at some point towards like the end of the, the Beatles run. Um, but man, now in, in you know pushing eighty, that thing is nowhere to be found. <laughs> well, he keeps his hair very short. Keeps it very short and yeah. very black. He definitely is putting a little just for men. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that's what he uses. Barbara, get me the five minute just for men. Oh, Jet black. You have to stop doing Ringo voice. <laughs> it's so to. fun. It's so fun. I'm sorry, I'm listeners. Sorry. They're gonna cancel their subscriptions. They are. Keep it but up. don't do that. Stay here on our show because we have a really good show for you today. Uh, once again, we have a return guest. Woo-woo. The second, uh, the Two Timers Club has a new member today. <laughs> Two Timers Club. Um, I'm very excited about this. Uh, today's track that we're going to talk about is kind of a bit of an outlier that I was kind of on the fence about including in the list uh, altogether. Um, but all the signs point to that at some point in time, this was in consideration to go on Rubber Soul. Um, and even though it seems to kind of have fallen off the uh, the radar pretty quickly after they tracked it. But with that in mind, I think it should still be here. But it's a very short uh, instrumental thing, kind of in the vein of Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. So as I was thinking of who we could talk to on this show, I thought to myself, well, let's see, Booker T and the MGs from Memphis, Tennessee. We know a producer, engineer, musician, uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, one of the most celebrated guys in his field. Um, he has worked with artists such as Jack White, Klaus Vorman, who you may know from The Beatles Story, um, Big Star, Low Cut Connie, North Mississippi All-Stars, Don Bryant, a laundry list of people, a who's who. Uh, he's been there working on those records for a long time. He's been immersed in the music scene in Memphis uh, for years and years. So I thought it would be good to pick his brain and look a little bit about the, and look a little bit at the relationship between the Beatles and Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, friends and fr- so friends of the show. <laughs> is that is that a good one? Friends of the show. Say folks. So, good folks. If you would please welcome back to our show, Mr. Adam Hill. Yeah. Hello, hello. Thank you, thank you. Please, please, no autographs, please. The the, the newest member of the Two Timers Club. You missed, you, to, you totally had like a, they will be tossed right there. Like, oh, shit. he set it up for you oh, and you I just let it. it go. I blew it. Will you please tell, will you please say no no autographs, please? And then tell people that you'll throw it in the, you'll throw it in the trash? <laughs> no, no, please, no. No, no autographs, please, please. <laughs> no more fan mail after October 20th. <laughs> so good. Uh, but good to see you again, man. Welcome back to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to see you uh, at home and as opposed to uh, in the woods as you were last time. Yeah, I was in the wilds of Arkansas, the natural state. Ooh, <laughs> the natural the state. Natural state. Uh, is that actually their their state nickname? I didn't know that. Yeah, that actually is the best part of Arkansas. It's the beautiful, uh, you know, who wants to go to Little Rock, you know, <laughs> or, or, but, but when, once you get out in, in the like state parks and stuff, it's lovely. Yeah. Nice. And they're a little, little they're actually more progressive than we are. They actually have medical marijuana in there now. So, you know, come on, Tennessee. Just a hop, skip and a jump up the road from you. Wow. I'm going to have to, I'm going to 
I'm gonna have to PO box get a PO box over there, you know, so I can do residency. <laughs> I am legit shocked that, yeah, that Arkansas has legal like medical marijuana. I'm very shocked. Yeah, it's the medical. It's it's not quite California yet, but right. hey, I'll call that progress. <laughs> we'll take what we can get these days. Yep. But uh <laughs> Well, welcome back, man. Let's uh, let's dive in a little bit. I wanted to go back a little bit sure. to um, to your younger days. You are born and raised in Memphis. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, no, but no, I was no. actually born in Nashville. Oh, and I, okay. I grew up, yeah, I I grew up in Nashville. Nineteen, I wasn't going to college, and I was working in restaurants. And my parents were. Uh, and I don't blame them. They said, "Well, if you're gonna, if you're not going to school, uh, you you need to pay rent." And I thought, "Well, if I'm gonna pay rent, I'll move out." And at that point, one of my friends, he was he's about four years older than me. I, I met him. I was in Marchie Drumline. He had been in the same drumline, and he had come back to instruct the drumline. He played drums. He learned. I play guitar. We started playing together. And uh, basically, JT had been going to MTSU some, and then he had been going to Memphis State, now University of Memphis some. So uh, he was like, why don't you come to Memphis and we'll start a band? So I moved here when I was 19 and uh, and did all the stupid things for about four years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, played in cover bands near the college and drank mm-hmm. too much and worked in restaurants. Had a lot of good times, though, but eventually everything fell apart and I crawled back to Nashville and I ended up uh, going to an engineering school. And when I got out of the engineering school, this is way too much information for your podcast. <laughs> the fans want to know. <laughs> um, when I got done with engineering in Nashville, I didn't find anything permanent. And at that point, uh, my now wife, we were dating long distance. All my real friends I had made in Memphis. And finally, I was just sick of Nashville again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, screw this. I'm going back to Memphis. And I've been back. Uh, that was 02. I got hired at Arden like the day after I moved back. <laughs> wow. As a day guy. Because I'd been calling Jody uh, a few, and he would always say, well, we don't really have any uh, openings now, but check back in a few months. So he contacted me and said, can you come in for an interview? And I'm pretty sure he thought I was still in Nashville, uh, but wanted to come back. And I said, no, actually, I'm in Midtown. I can be there in, you know, 20 minutes. So, uh, (laughs) Well, that worked out well. Yeah. (laughs) So, So, yeah, basically, I, you know, I left Nashville twice from Memphis. I feel like I've been deceived. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> you, you you watch CMT, don't you? Oh, <laughs> uh, don't knock CMT, man. Our guests from this past week uh, have like a video on the top 10 countdown on CMT mm-hmm. right now. Well, I have to admit, I've not watched it in a long time, so I shouldn't despair. <laughs> Fair enough. So, okay, then. So all the time that you've been kind of ensconced in the Memphis music scene there. Um, With that in mind, I feel like there's kind of a similarity between Memphis and New Orleans and Liverpool um, in that all three cities have this kind of very uh, intense, uh, heavy musical history that really um, you kind of are surrounded by it 24-7. It's just kind of like you're immersed in it the whole time. Um, so when do you feel like when you first, so when you arrive to Memphis, uh, at what point does that kind of like, do you feel submersed in that history? Well, I mean, it was a gradual thing. The more I learned about it, the more I loved it. And the more people I met who were either part of it or connected to people who were part of these legendary labels, songs, studios. Mm -hmm. And my, um, I've always been a little like when I was at Arden for 15 years I kind of ended up being the archivist there and so I was always into the history and you know to tie it in with the Beatles I learned about a lot of that stuff through the Beatles like they would talk about how they love Memphis or Mm -hmm. they or they would talk about how they love Chuck Berry and I go back and listen to Chuck Berry and then he'd say well I love T-Bone Walker so I go back and listen to T-Bone Walker and and Muddy Waters and then Muddy Waters would be like well yeah I I remember meeting Robert Johnson so I go back and listen to Robert (laughs) Johnson um oh I'm I'm losing the train there was one guy before Robert Johnson that was the 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 
the original, like one of the oldest Delta Blues men. It's slipping my mind. But the point being is you just chase the thread back through history and and you kind of see the progression of things and you and you get to learn to appreciate all kinds of music because of it. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you love music, it would make sense that you would love the people that influenced that music. Like, it it all is derived from each other. Yeah. So, just, like, down down the road, just, like, bam, bam, bam. So, it it would completely make sense. And I, I think, you know, there's a point where... Or a river. Yeah, or there's a river there. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, in regards to the Beatles, there's a point where as merchant seamen are coming back over to Liverpool and bringing records that they're buying from the States. And then those guys are getting those records as kids. Um, so they're getting Chuck Berry, uh, Muddy Waters, you know, Robert, like they're getting that education beforehand. Um, and then putting, you know, eventually kind of following that through, um, through Skiffle and the stuff that they're growing up on. Whereas I guess in the States you've got more that is then jiving with country. And then from that you kind of get rock and roll, which then makes its way to Liverpool. And then they kind of create their version of it. But it seems kind of like the same, the same road is just taking kind of like two little small turns. Like where the Beatles are a little more rock influenced, like sort of the people in the States remain like like got a little more country influence is that what you're kind of yeah saying? well i I, th- I think what i'm trying to say is like you know the the beatles are growing up on kind of the same things that the guys in memphis that are starting bands in the 60s like i'm talking about like the r&b guys and like the soul guys like those players uh are they've they've got the same backgrounds as, the, as those guys but things are kind of going through a different filter and i think maybe that's kind of what attracts that's what what I think attracts the Beatles to Memphis music and stacks and then up the road in, in Detroit and Motown and things like that. Um, I think there's like, there's a through line on all that music that they really connect to in the first place that kind of pulls them in. Yeah. And well, and speaking of the country and Western aspect, uh, I remember reading in the Beatles anthology book that, you know, Ringo wanted to move to Texas. He even applied for a, a, mm-hmm. a visa, I believe. And Lennon talked about how he remembers hearing Hank Williams records before he ever heard an Elvis record. Mm-hmm. So the country Western influence, I mean, we are only 200 miles from, from Nashville. Tennessee is a state. It's insane what it's contributed, much less just Memphis. Right. Um, but so you have that country Western element. And, and something that always struck me when I was starting to read books about the Beatles and read interviews and go see Hard Day's Night trying to figure out what the hell they're saying through those accents. <laughs> it seems so foreign. Like, what, what, like, growing up English in the 50s, you know, post-war England, drab, uh, mm-hmm. by their own account. It seems so foreign, like, the environment that they were in. And I, and I think that they had the same concept of Memphis or Kansas City or New Orleans. They they had it must have seemed like another planet to right. them, America. <laughs> you yeah. know, America and 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 those cities specifically because of the music. But they talked about in general in America, everything was you know England was black and white. America was color. England you had to wear trousers. In America you wore denim jeans. Right. Um, the music. <laughs> better everything better from over there the mm. way we would kind of view everything from from england was better zeppelin and the who and the beatles there was an argument to be made for that at some point and i draw a big parallel between how mysterious you know the concept of the stuff you love it seems like it's from another planet and it's so uh intriguing and, and, and invigorating i mean t- to them elvis was Elvis wasn't a guy that worked, you know, drove a truck down Union Avenue. This was a, a Martian that came and visited them. You yeah. know, they had no concept of what Tupelo was like. So I, 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 the mutual admiration society kind of began with that concept to me. Yeah. Which then the Beatles, of course, which can lead into where we're headed, um, is they were copping Booker T and the MGs for 12 bar original. There's yeah. no doubt about it. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. 
and I had I went and did a little bit of homework. I thought they had overdubbed because there's two different guitar tones that play lead licks. Mm-hmm. But I knew Lennon could play lead, and obviously George did. But there's also a keyboard. But then I heard a bass, and I was like, well, this is Rubber Soul. Paul wasn't really overdubbing his bass afterwards yet. And I read that it was George Martin playing the harmonium stuff. Which, yeah. You know, they, they didn't have – they had a Hammond organ at, 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 at Abbey Road. Now, why he would choose to play a blues <laughs> on a harmonium, I maybe it was the reefer. I don't know. But it, <laughs> well, <laughs> Let's take a quick break. We're going to pause for a quick little tiny commercial, and then we're going to come back and we'll get into 12, into, uh, 12 Bar Original. Cool? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> cornflakes. Bye, cornflakes. <laughs> we'll be right back. All right, we are back with Adam Hill, and we are jumping in. Adam, if you would, please give me a drum roll, my friend. <laughs> Coming in at number 199 is 12 Bar Original. <laughs> So, a little back history on 12 Bar Original. So, 1963, well before the Beatles come to America, George Harrison becomes the first Beatle to go to America when he travels to Illinois to visit his sister Louise. Uh, while he's over here, he buys a handful of records. One of those records is called Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. Uh, the song, yeah. of course, becomes a very well-known hit. Obviously, it makes some kind of impression on the boys because just two short years later, they tried their hand at making their own version of Green Onions. So as the Beatles are working on Rubber Soul in 1965, they're starting to push the staff of Abbey Road to get bigger bottom end on the bass, more vibe on the recordings, kind of closer to what they're hearing come out of Stax in Memphis, uh, Motown in Detroit, and all these like soul and R&B records that they love. And they're always going back to R&B uh, as kind of a touchstone, uh, sonically especially, even as pop and rock are kind of the ruler of the day. Um, so with the deadline on the album approaching, one evening the band, who are the greatest songwriters of all time, decide to take a stab at recording an instrumental. Why not? Um, they decide to do a 12-bar blues uh, with organ accompaniment from George Martin. Its similarities to Green Onions cannot be uh, denied. Uh, they make two passes at the track. The first one breaks down. Uh, the second one stretches over six minutes. Uh, it's your basic lineup. Paul on bass, Ringo on drums. George is on guitar, uh, playing with the volume pedal also. Uh, John's on guitar as well. And George Martin joins them on that funky, funky harmonium. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they work on the track for just a little bit. Uh, they have it mixed down a couple days later. Uh, each band member takes home an acetate of the record, uh, but at that point, the track kind of makes its exit from consideration, and it's no longer discussed or talked about as a concern for Rubber Soul. Uh, there was some rumbling at some point that Rubber Soul was supposed to have an instrumental title track. Maybe it was this song. Who knows? It's just one of the many, many mysteries of the Beatles. So why do I have this little curious instrumental at number 199? So... I think it's definitely a curio for sure to hear a band that's so great at songcraft, uh, at writing words and lyrics, melody, attempt to pull off basically Booker T and the MG's like signature instrumental tune. Uh, it the track itself feels kind of awkward. Uh, Ringo plods along a little bit more than he swings. He feels kind of robotic on it. Um, George is kind of going back and forth between a volume pedal on his guitar and it's never particularly bluesy or soulful. Um, John's kind of doing like some simple riffs here and there. And then some kind of normal, like John kind of noisy lead parts. 
And then George Martin is on this harmonium and he's doing some kind of weird things on it. It's a little bit freaky, but it's an, definitely an interesting choice sonically for that. Um, so in a lot of ways, you know, I kind of think if this was played at a quicker tempo, I could hear this being something that they would jam on for like 10 minutes when they're all pilled up in Hamburg. Like if they bumped it up by maybe like 40 beats per minute and just kind of slammed out on it, it would probably be really cool. Uh, but here, it never quite gels or gets to anything resembling soul. Um, and it's, there's a certain thing that a group like Booker T and the MGs has that makes a song like Green Onions work. And it's like a band like them or like the Meters. And it's that ability to really like lay back and groove together. Um, and as a band, th that's just not something that comes naturally to the Beatles. And I'm not knocking them, but like they're a song band. They're not a jam band. Uh, you know, even if you look at like them jamming during Let It Be, the jams are always just incredibly sloppy. Uh, I mean, there are moments that are really cool, but it's just that's not their forte. Uh, but part of me thinks that maybe this is kind of the joke about the whole thing. Like during the Rubber Soul sessions or not not the Rubber Soul sessions, but when they're working on I'm Down and you hear Paul keep saying Plastic Soul as they're talking about the song, like kind of mocking the fact that like we're just kind of making fun of like white guy soul music uh so maybe they kind of know that this isn't really their wheelhouse i don't know um but you know i think the biggest problem that i have with it is that i feel like as far as like performance wise <laughs> everyone is like stepping on each other's toes throughout it you know no one ever sits back and lets like one instrument be the focus of what's happening i think part of jamming or doing a track like this is like establishing a foundation for somebody to step out on but everyone's kind of soloing all at the same time it seems like at one point uh and i think that's just because that's they don't have the experience doing this but at the end of the day i do find that it's it's really fun to hear them kind of let down their hair and do something different and it kind of makes me like i nod my head a little bit when i hear it i don't know that i've ever skipped it so i think i actually like kind of enjoyed a lot more than i may sound like i do <laughs> like i know I'm, I'm shitting all over it but i enjoy it but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think you know trying new things is always kind we're of. We're gonna get so many tweets oh, about yeah. this. Oh. <laughs> I'm almost done. I'm almost done. <laughs> so uh, trying new things is always kind of a cornerstone of what the Beatles do, and I think it's one of their best attributes. I think another attribute though that's beneficial is that they know when and how to self-edit, and they knew that this was not up to snuff with the best of what they could do, or the best of what those who could do this kind of music do. Uh, I do feel like also as a sidebar, it could have actually functioned really well as something like uh, there's an untitled instrumental track on the Oasis album. What's the story morning glory that kind of fades in and out between a couple different spots as like a transition. It might've been neat to use as something like that on rubber soul. Uh, like in that context, I could hear that kind of being neat to just kind of come and go at different spots. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a weird little track. I kind of enjoy it, even though it's about as funky as a, as a salad. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's it's well, it's interesting that unless I'm missing something, I believe that's the first instrumental that they recorded since they did uh, "Cry for a Shadow" in yeah, Hamburg. Correct. Yeah, so that's interesting, and also the fact that. Rubber Soul was one of the quickest put together records of Beatles material that didn't involve covers, right? right. They had didn't even start until you know a week into October, and this was for the Christmas market. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. I went back and reviewed the Beatles recording sessions, the Mark Lewison book, and um, the economy of it all. It, it struck me they did that towards the end of the session, mm -hmm. and I think the only thing recorded after that might have been "Think for Yourself." So they they weren't at that point thinking, "Oh, we don't have enough songs" because they already had what twelve in the can, I guess. And it all so they did that song one night. They took home a rough mix, but the other thing, the last work that was done on any material recorded around the rubber soul sessions they actually went back and did a remix 
after they had mixed rubber soul just for them to take home and listen to some more. Mm-hmm. Now, why they did that? I don't know, but they did go back and give it a full mix of that second take at the end of uh, the sessions when they already knew it wasn't going to be on the record. So and that, is, that is this when they move. edit it down to the length that we get on the anthology? That is a question I don't have an answer to. Then well, I wish. Why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> but quite possibly, quite possibly. Yeah. Uh, because I've you know there's different iterations. Some fades, some have a hard ending, so it's hard to know whether it was done during that session at the end of '65 or when John Barrett was going through. Uh, compiling material to see what existed as outtakes in the early 80s. There was a bootleg made of what were called the John Barrett tapes. Mm-hmm. He kind of went through recordings the way Lewison did later, just to document what might be there for for uh, and you know the anthology wasn't even a, a thought at that point, but so, any unreleased Beatles material. So it could have been from something he did or uh, as you noted, it could have just been done during the anthology session right. so it's i don't know interesting question yeah i want to inquiring want to know <laughs> mm-hmm. i what so what are you what are you what are y'all's thoughts on this i guess where do you where do you find it how does it how does it fit your your palate i think it's sloppy <laughs> <laughs> not well executed but interesting not I think everything in the Beatles canon is interesting because I'm. it all feeds into the story of the band. I personally find the song to be just painfully white. Like, it is... Duly <laughs> <laughs> noted. Yep. It is yeah. void of everything great that like Booker T and the MGs did or like any of the stacks artists or, you know, like whatever they were trying to emulate, they stripped it for parts. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, just like, I mean, it's fine. Like, it's not, it's not like bad, you know, no, like yeah. again, there's like millions of bad songs in the world. Sure. It's fine. If it came on, I would probably let it play. And then, like, wait for the next thing, but it's like, this is this is not your wheelhouse, guys. Yeah. Just let it be. Like, appreciate, like, love, love, love green onions, love it, but you don't need to try and do your own because mm-hmm. it's not your jam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's very white. Yeah. 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 Or should I say, unfunky? It is definitely it's unfunky. quite unfunky. Yeah. And it's it's funny because there is a point. Uh, you know, somewhere in 67, I think, um, during Sergeant Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour, where, and it, it kind of rears its head on like, I am the walrus, where Ringo learns to get real funky for a second and like sits mm. back on the group, on the beat, like really hard. Um, even like starting in like 66 during like Christmas time is here again. He's like laying back on things and just like, he just gets this real funky big tone. Um, and it's like Lovely a perfect example. Yeah. It's almost like maybe like he got like really good weed at that point and just learned to like chill a little <laughs> bit. Uh, but here they're definitely not on it. It's like, yeah, it's about as unfunky as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, like you said, the harmonium does not does not add to the, the grease at all. <laughs> Yeah, the most exciting thing for me about it is that it's 
they are obviously paying tribute to Booker T and the MGs, and there's that Memphis connection once again. Mm -hmm. And then we find out at some point, it, it may even been, yeah, I guess they it was not well reported at the time, but the fact that they wanted to come record in Memphis mm -hmm. after they had finished Rubber Soul and they knew they were going to do another LP and I went there's a great book by Rob Bowman called Soulsville USA that's yeah. a well reason um, we, we find out you know we do know they wanted to come record at Stax after they had completed Rubber Soul they know they're going to record an album and then tour the US they know they're going to come to the US and tour again which I'm sure factors into their plans so they contact Stacks. I think initially in this book it says they uh, contacted the Atlantic office in New York. And by they, I mean Brian Epstein's office. Right. Stacks was distributed by Atlantic. Some of the records will come out with a Stacks label. Some will be on Atco. Some would, I don't. Some may have been on an Atlantic label too. But it, you know that was back in the middle of independent distribution, a completely different world from the seventies, eighties, and on. Mm -hmm. But. So Brian reaches out to Atlantic and where Tom Dowd is, Tom Dowd comes down to Memphis and uh, he and Jim Stewart and, and Cropper make sure that everything's working okay. Because I believe that would be around the time that Stax purchased a new four track machine and a Spectrasonics desk, which coincidentally, there's all these little parallels between John Fry and the Beatles because that's what he loved mm -hmm. but that was that was the same point at which John Fry had bought a four track machine and a Spectre Sonics console uh, the same models and that's how Stax ended up doing work <clears throat> at Art Barry mm -hmm. Manning and, and John Fry point being they wanted to make sure they upgraded the electronics because they must have been aware that a Abbey Road or uh, what was it called? EMI as it was called at the time was very technically on the ball and proficient. So Brian Epstein actually came to Memphis and, and it says he stayed at the Rivermont, which was this big fancy holiday Inn. you know, the holiday Inn is from Memphis as well. That's down on that. the river. And um, yeah, Kimmins Wilson found, the Holiday Inn, and he was he was uh, Memphian, and actually Sam Phillips knew him and had a lot of stock in Holiday Inn, which didn't hurt Sam Phillips' uh, bottom line either. Yeah, huh. and there was a Holiday Inn record label uh, because everybody had a label back then, wow. uh, and it wasn't goofy stuff. It was uh, well, I don't know that much about the label, but Brian Epstein comes to Memphis, stays at the Rivermont, and there was some banker that uh, since Jim Stewart worked at first national bank i believe he, he didn't quit his job for a long time at the bank mm -hmm. um when he was engineering at stacks but it, there was also a house out on walnut grove that they offered to brian epstein so brian epstein comes and checks it out and i guess ted's home and by the time he gets home i looked they started recording revolver uh, brian came in march and I believe they started recording Revolver at the very end of March or the beginning of April. So I think he probably got back and they were like, I, I don't know the timeline of events, but basically it got leaked to the press. Mm -hmm. And I heard differing stories, but it, Miss Axton, Estelle Axton, the stack, uh, the axe in the stacks, in the stacks. <laughs> uh, Jim Stewart's sister. Who, uh, whose husband mortgaged their house to help get stacks started. But Estelle Axton, uh, I was told by Don Nix that Miss Axton, who was a lovely lady by all accounts, but she kind of spilled the beans. But there were also secretaries at Stacks that could have quite possibly talked to the local newspaper. It's hard to say, but the word got out. And you, Stacks is located, it, it, even back then, it was not um, a great neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it, it kind of went downhill afterwards. And now it's. It's kind of on, on the rise, but South Memphis, you know, can be a little rough sometimes still. And, and but they've, the reason that they gave was that the security situation would just have been untenable, which, which is a valid concern. There, there was, at that point, there was no security at Stacks. Right. And they were 
on a road that any from Memphis could have driven over there. And the, the the local police would have had to have dealt with it. And it, it certainly was a lot easier for the Beatles to take a car out of the suburbs into London than it was to come stay in Memphis, keep where they're staying a secret, and then deal with the security situation at Stacks. Yeah. Um, there's also a letter that has surfaced that George Harrison, I can't remember who he wrote it to. It might be a fan. It was either a fan or an, an acquaintance where he confirms in the letter uh, contemporaneously. Is that the right word? Uh, at the time, you know, he wrote this letter in 66 saying, yeah, we wanted to come. I'm paraphrasing. We wanted to record at Stacks, but the money got funny, uh, which I've never heard that repeated anywhere else. So maybe mm-hmm. he was just simplifying the reasons as well but it's certainly documented that loved booker t and the mgs they wanted to come to memphis they wanted to record at stacks and it certainly would have been a much different record considering the technical innovations that the the staff at emi specifically ken townsend one of the technical engineers who made the first di box for them Mm -hmm. he figured out how plug things into the Leslie cabinet. He created ADT, artificial double tracking, that enabled the Beatles to not have to manually double track. And it's also a specifically, singularly excellent version of ADT that you can't duplicate anywhere else. And I won't get into the technical aspects <laughs> if you want. recording. Uh, or recording the Beatles by Brian Cahew. And, Such a good book. Oh my gosh, I'm going to proffer's name and i feel horrible (laughs) but so the the technical innovations at abbey road that they employed on revolver would not have been duplicated in memphis right that is i mean (laughs) the the first thing that they're that they work on that session is tomorrow never knows like exactly that in the the stacks world is you know how do seven or eight how do those streams even cross yeah Exactly. Yeah. Now I could see so, that being a really cool oh, at I could see that being really cool on something like uh like Got to Get You Into My Life or maybe Good Day Sunshine. Tracks like that could have yeah, been really Memphis cool Horns. in Memphis with Memphis Horns, yeah. <laughs> like that would have been cool. Yeah, I agree. Do you remember it was on public television there was an hour long special that was produced hell, I don't know, ten, fifteen years ago called John Lennon's Jukebox. Vaguely, I I vaguely remember this. He had a portable jukebox that held, I'm I'm guessing, you know, 12 to 15, 45 records. But Mm -hmm. it was a portable jukebox. He could hit the button and it would play his record and add a speaker in it. And what they did is they contacted all the artists who had records in John Lennon's jukebox that he carried around in the late 60s. And one of those records, I don't remember which Booker T 45 it was, but they interviewed Steve Cropper mm-hmm. for it. And of course, Steve uh, played on Lennon's rock and roll sessions when they were cutting with Phil Spector while he was firing guns into the ceiling. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> uh, so which brings us to our, which brings us to the point of the show where we say, fuck Phil Spector. Yeah. Every time he comes up, I got to yeah. drop it on. Uh, amazing records horrible person oh yeah exactly yeah um so the river runs through it you know the cropper played on rock and roll in fact there's a local band of amazing you know memphis musicians that i know and love and respect and they cover booker t and the mgs and in fact they've even done shows at stacks where they played macklemore avenue in its entirety right wow and now, they call themselves the Mater D's. The what? Do you know why they call themselves the Mater D's? Uh-uh. Why? Because John Lennon jokingly referred to them, to Steve Cropper, as Booker Booker Table and the Mater D's. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> now, so, there's, do, do you know how the Macklemore, Macklemore Avenue album comes together? Like... Obviously, you know, and that's one of the things I'm curious about is there's obviously some kind of uh, reciprocity in the uh, respect 
in those two yes. in, the, in those two worlds. Do you know much about how that record came together? I don't know the genesis of it. I know that they definitely recorded it at Stax, and they definitely recorded it. Uh, I'm sorry, they definitely recorded it at Stax, and they definitely mixed that at Ardent, the location on National Street that just had one room mm-hmm. in it. Because I, my one of my mentors, John Fry, who I worked for for many years. He told he related a story to me. He um, Cropper brought it over to Ardent to mix, which was not uncommon for other records. But John said that the Stax folks knew that John and the crew over there were all big Beatles fans, major Beatles fans, and they thought it was entirely appropriate to have John mix it with Cropper. So John uh, JF tells me that they're sitting there mixing the record. And back then there was no automation that you could write. It was all you're doing you're doing all the mixes, all the moves by hand, and it's sort of its own performance. Mm-hmm. And John Fry was anticipating fader moves while mixing the record. And he said at one point Cropper turned to him and said, It's almost like you know what's coming up. How do you know how 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 are you doing that so well? And John said he turned to him and went, well, I've only hold, heard the original about a million times <laughs> because he was a, he, John was a huge fan of the Beatles and how they did things at EMI and how the engineers did and Jeff Emmerich and Norman Smith. Mm-hmm. And he knew the record in and out at the time Macklemore Avenue was getting mixed. I um, a couple of years ago came across a record uh, during Record Store Day. Uh, it's a compilation called Stax Does the Beatles. Have you heard this? I've heard of it. I don't have a copy of it. I need to get one. My but goodness. Tell me about it. It's, I mean, it's, you got Isaac Hayes does like a, what's got to be like a 12 minute version of something that's just like or- brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, Carla Thomas, Barkay, Steve Cropper, Booker T. I mean, it's, it's heavy hitters. And it's so interesting that all these artists from the same label in the same town, like we're covering these songs. Like I always found that like, just an incredibly interesting thing because like obviously like in the early days for the Beatles they're covering a ton of Memphis artists whether it's you know Elvis or Carl Perkins Charlie Lewis I mean there's just you know seeing how that kind of back and forth was I thought was really interesting to kind of discover that after the fact well and the other thing is I do remember reading an interview with uh, Booker T and you could tell if you listen to those arrangements on Macklemore Avenue, they're not straight up copies of the arrangements mm-hmm. of the songs yeah. on Abbey Road. Um, obviously, they're playing the songs that are on Abbey Road, but I think they really enjoyed. They were such a good. They were such good. You know, uh, in, including um, Al Jackson Jr. Yep. was an amazing producer and arranger, just like the rest of. Them. So I think all four of them really enjoyed coming up with the arrangements of those songs with their Memphis flavor and doing it the way they felt, but playing these songs that aren't Memphis R&B, but fit perfectly with the way they arranged it. You know, yeah. it, was, it was really beautiful the way it worked out. And in fact, I think I'm pretty sure this record store day that's coming up, they... Um, are, are putting out a new pressing of Macklemore Avenue. They are, yeah. That's uh, out. Well, we're taping on Friday. It's out tomorrow, which is Record Store Day. So, uh, and those lacquers were cut by Jeff Powell here in Memphis at, at Sam Phillips. He nice. has his lathe over there. So oh, cool. That's man, reciprocal. How about that? <laughs> yeah, very I'll cool. A story um, that I should have mentioned to you. The Stax Academy, mm-hmm. they're, they're the Stax Music Academy. There's the high school, but they also have the Music Academy, and it's tied in, and I should know how to explain that better, but I don't, so I'll keep going. <laughs> Fair they enough. A fundraiser at this really nice restaurant here in Memphis, and they have the Stax students, excuse me, some of them are running sounds, some of them are performing. Mm-hmm. 
but they play all this music at this fundraiser and there's a lot of wine and really good food and everybody donates a lot of money to help. And my wife's friend, the tickets are expensive. Uh, she kind of hooks us up. So we all go together (laughs) and we're there. And I, I look over and I realize that Jim Stewart is sitting at a table about 15 feet from me. Now, Stewart is, I won't, I wouldn't call him a recluse. He's in his nineties. He lives way out in the country outside of Memphis. And mm-hmm. he's just not, he's not, not out and about and on. He's not on the scene. The scene anymore. You know, yeah. you don't see him that often in public. And I start freaking out. I'm like, Oh my God, Jim Stewart. I have to at least go and say something to him before the night's over. Mm-hmm. And he's there with Betty Crutcher, who was a writer and, artist on stacks amazing in her own right and uh in fact john lennon even in in some interview in the 70s he he mentioned uh that he met her and he was a fan or i'd heard the story about that happening maybe when he was at the grammys that one year and he introduced something with paul simon Mm -hmm. but so at the end of the night i i feel bad i kind of i had a few glasses of wine i kind (laughs) of coughed them outside a little bit but i walked up to Stewart. And I said, I'm sorry to, to bother you, but I just wanted to introduce myself. Uh, my name's Adam. I worked for John Fry for many years, and he always had wonderful things to say about you. And I'm a huge fan and appreciate what you did in the history of American music and Memphis music. And, uh, and, and he, I didn't realize it was Betty Crusher with him until he introduced her. And then I fawned over her. So I was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> but it was just amazing to, to actually, you know, and it's funny, Jim Stewart is a legend and icon, but he's got this little country voice. He was a, a fiddler in a country band. The stack started out recording little doo-wop things and country things before mm-hmm. they fell into R&B. And they really fell into R&B because of finding the Capitol Theater over there on Macklemore in South Memphis, which was really in uh, a black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Not exclusively, but majority. And there was even a big star grocery store on Macklemore, pretty much across the street from Stacks. And Booker T bagged groceries there when he was a kid before he walked into Stacks. Wow. So, and then later, of course, Big Star, the band named after that grocery store, mm-hmm. ends up on an art label that's distributed by Stacks. Right. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you do the math. I, I, wow. <laughs> I'm rambling at this point. But I love just it, all the, That's what I was talking about earlier, though. The fact the longer I stayed here and the more I worked in studios here and the more that I met people like Don Nix who uh, was an artist and producer, amazing. And, of course, Don got tied in with George Harrison. He was at the uh, concert for Bangladesh because George called him up and asked him. They had gotten to know each other through Leon Russell and all the Tulsa people that were playing on Leon Russell's records and then ended up playing on George Harrison's records. So basically, George Harrison calls up Don Nix, who was at Stax from the beginning to the end, and asked him to put a choir of background singers together. <laughs> so Don rounds them all up, takes them to the airport, calls George and says, all right, I'm getting ready to put everybody on the plane. And George is like, well, no, you're getting on the plane, too. I, you're, you need to come, too. <laughs> so that's how Don is singing with, uh, I'm the only lady I remember, Claudia Lanier, because she is a legend. She was an Iket. And also had a solo career and also sang backup for a million people. Um, and she was in Playboy. <laughs> uh, goodness gracious. But uh, so I, another river runs through it connecting Memphis and these guys from Liverpool that we love. There's yeah. so many things. There's even a crazy story John Fry confirmed for me. Somehow an acetate of a rough mix of a day in the life shows up in Memphis. <laughs> what? Nobody knows how the F it happened. When does that show up? Uh, in um, early 67. Wow. I can't say the month. Like, but or, but like know, before the album comes out. June, before the album comes out. Holy shit. 
so psychedelic and crazy that this DJ gets a hold of it, right? Mm-hmm. And they bring it to Arden because they know that, again, Arden is full of Anglophiles. And they say, is this John Lennon singing? And John Fry told me, he said, well, of course it is. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) That was literally a John Fry. That's amazing. I just want to, like, take a second and mention, like, draw attention to the fact that he put together a choir and was going to put them on a plane to the concert in Bangladesh, a concert for Bangladesh. Without him, without like the person in charge, they're so yeah. good that he's like, "Y'all got this. Like, you know what you're doing. Just show yeah, up. They'll give you some Madison words." Square Garden, and it'll be fine. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. You got it. Like, just. Are you guys free Thursday? There's a gig if you want it. Right. It's fucking it's, Madison Square Garden with George Goddamn Harrison. Like, such pros. And, and, and a guy, a guy named Bob Dylan might be there. I don't know. <laughs> he's got a weird voice. I don't know. He's this weird guy. And this other guy, Clapton, he'll be there. Whatever. It's just a gig. Just show up. They'll probably pay you. <laughs> just don't be late. Mime is money. Come on. But, uh, man. It's amazing. So, oh, up and go and then concert for me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's put a bow on it. So uh, number 199 out of 223, 12-bar original. What do you think? Yay or nay? Am I too high, too low? Just right. I don't know. I I think it might be too high, but I trust your judgment, my friend. I'm not. I'm not gonna. As as we discussed last time, it's uh, uh, to quote Jesse Jackson, the point is moot. You know, it's, <laughs> what, what what do you have behind this? Like, name a few songs that you like less than Twelve Bar Original. The goddamn long and winding road <laughs> is behind this. <laughs> There it is. The That's best the laugh. laugh in rock and roll. Best laugh in the music industry. My Adam friends. Hill. Uh, uh, why am I here? Right? <laughs> Prior to this, we have had, let's see, last week we had Act Naturally. Uh, we had What's the New Mary Jane. Obla- oh, shit. Act Naturally, dude? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Owens? Uh, Obla D, Obla Da. Got, I got some hate for that. that Come on. We got we got some hate for Obla D, Obla Da. Uh, flying really? the word, oh my God. The words of love. Hated, have to hate it. Right. Come on. I, and again, I don't hate them. I'm just putting them in my preference, my order of preference. I understand. Yeah, hate's a strong word. Unless yeah. you're talking about Donald Trump, and it's not strong enough. That, that's <laughs> that. That is not the strongest word I could find. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeesh. <laughs> Which, uh, while we're there, let's take a second and pause for this commercial to remind everyone to vote. We'll be right back. All right. Be sure to go cast your vote on November 3rd. But before then, Adam Hill, can we do some rapid-fire questions, my friend? Yes, sir. I'm ready. Julia, can you give us the rapid-fire hair metal song? Pew! Pew, 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 pew. Rapid-fire! Is that what it is? I forgot already. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. Yes. Rapid-fire! Is that right? Knee flat. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. impressive, dude. So last time, our rapid-fire questions were all Beatles-specific. Uh, this time, we're going to do Memphis-specific. So okay, if you would, please, give me uh, your... And I, I was going to do top five, but I'll just do, I'll just do single favorites instead. Top five is always a tough call. Uh, so if you would, please, Adam, your favorite Memphis song. Oh, jeez. Uh, it can't be Lord. Mark Cohen walk, walking in Memphis, by the way. <laughs> that goes, Fuck, no, that goes in the bin. It will be tossed. <laughs> okay. Hip Hugger. Hip Hugger? Is one of them. Yeah, that's I a jam. I love that that intro lick and Al Jackson's snare, man. That just that just smacks your face to attention. Like, what? Yeah. Um, but, oh, my goodness. Memphis songs. Um. And, and they don't have to have Memphis in the title. No, no, no. Talking I'm talking by by a Memphis artist from, from Memphis, done in Memphis. Um, it, I gotta say, in the street, I the, you gotta have one, one big star song in there. Yeah, I would say Mystery Train, Elvis. Okay, you okay. Not deny the the intensity of that recording. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Green's "I Can't Get Next to You." Oof, yeah, 
Um, I should probably think of some more recent stuff that I'm not thinking about. There's so many good contemporary bands, and I'm I'm blank. How many songs is that? Three. <laughs> I think four. that was three. That's that's fine. <laughs> that's a, that's a good enough okay. rapid answer. Um, your favorite Memphis artist. And then you can do a list. Well, if, you I want, have... if you want to give three, you want to give five, or you want to give one, it's up to you. I'll give 30. 30 score. Right? 30? Um, <laughs> Top 30 <laughs> Memphis artists. Uh, you know, I, I started with those songs, so we, we have to say the king. King will always be the king. I love him. Yeah. Elvis. They asked him what he missed about Memphis. He said everything. Everything. Um, <laughs> big star. Yeah. Booker T and the MGs. I'm, I'm leaving so many people out. I'm just repeating the same legacy artists. I mean, there's newer bands, but they're so like, good. Like, I mean, when... uh, the Raining Sound. Are you familiar? Oh, the Raining with Sound. Them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Hey, you, you have to put some. Oh my god, I'd have to look through my records, man. Um, that Albert King "Born Under a Bad Sign" record is never gets Smokes. old. Yeah. For me. Memphis artists, Memphis artists. The, there's a band, the Dirty Streets, that I did a record with, Blades of Grass. I guess I'm crawling into self promotion here, but I love <laughs> that record. Oh goodness gracious! I'm leaving like, so much. You're beating yourself I up I... about this. Very fun. We'll do this again, and I'll give you like okay. a heads up on it, and uh, fair enough. You can give us a list for that. All right, cool. Um, your favorite Memphis music moment of your career so far? Like, you know, whether it's working with somebody or meeting somebody at an award show or running into somebody at the grocery store. Like, what's that Memphis music moment for you? Well, I've I've engineered records for Don Nix, who, as I said, was at Stax. He was a member for the Marquees and was there from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. Working with him, I learned so much uh Bobby Manuel, another Stax artist. He's a guitarist and a producer who did amazing things and is still a killer musician and a killer person. I've learned so much from him. And I have to say, I, I, I've, I've gotten to know the Phillips family, uh, uh, Jerry Phillips and his brother Knox and uh, Jerry's daughter Hallie, who is helping keep... Uh, Phillips going uh, getting to meet the Phillips family was very special to me and I have to be honest with you one of the all time deepest things was meeting get, get, becoming friends with David Bell Chris Bell's brother mm-hmm. and getting with the Bell family and also sitting there with John Fry at a, uh, an SSL desk Remixing some Chris Bell songs was um, was was pretty pretty deep, man. That that that, that that's something I'll always be very glad I got to do. For sure, that's a special moment. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, so now I'm gonna go with the yeah. qu- questions that aren't so serious. Are you ready? If you could, in <laughs> hindsight, ask one Beatle to not make one artistic decision, what would that decision be? goodness it's hard to it's hard to contradict their judgment their judgment was pretty spot on um you know what i'd say lennon and and mainly lennon because i have a feeling he pushed george and ringo into it but uh lennon trusting alan klein uh and phil specter to totally deface let it be sure that's uh I've got a little problem with that, but hey, we got naked, so I mean, <laughs> valid. Naked. Well, let it be naked. <laughs> We've been naked. That's a different story, though. And to bring it home, Peter Jackson out. That's going to be fucking exciting. That is going to be exciting, and uh, I'm looking forward to exploring that more in some future episodes. Um, last yeah. question to bring it home: Who has the worst hairstyle in the '70s? Is it Paul with the mullet or George with the perm? <laughs> Paul with the mullet, man. That I mullet mean, is George so greasy. Purples, 
I know the grass is greener. I wanted straight hair. George wanted curls, man. Let him have it. <laughs> the mullet, man. That's that's hitting a little close to home. As I said, I left Nashville twice. <laughs> <laughs> That was a spectacularly terrible mullet. Oh, dude. Yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. Well, Adam, my brother, thank you so much for doing this with us, man. Uh, what do you have going on? Anything you want to tell the, tell the people about out there? Man, I got to tell I think I'm sure I brought it up last time we spoke, but the Low Cut Connie record is out. Yes. Private Lives. Go out. Because I... Look, I have no financial stake in this. I love this record. I'm proud of this record. I'm proud of what Adam and the crew have done. And I think the reviews are great. So I'm not just full of it here. Other people think so, too. Go listen to local <laughs> private lives. Yes. And we'll go from there. Excellent, excellent. Well, Adam, my friend, a pleasure as always. I hope we can do this again soon. Please. Yeah, I'd love to. Wonderful. Woo! Adam Hill, everybody. Always a treat. Yows. That was fun. So fun. Yowses. Yowses. Good times. Well, what do you guys think? Do you agree? Disagree? Number 199 for 12-bar original. Let us know your thoughts in the comments on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to follow us on all of our socials, Facebook, Instagram. That's it, basically. (laughs) Yep. That's all we got. (laughs) And, um, yeah, we'll be back next week with another episode no yeah another one another one how did you do more of this we've got 198 more yikes yup it's going to take a while in the meantime if you're able to go early vote go do it and uh, if not be ready to vote november 3rd yeah it's important until next time my babies i'm jonathan and i'm julia this has been ranking the beatles adios bye y'all Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. Um, if you have thoughts on anything, send us your hot takes. We would love to discuss it on a future episode. If you don't enjoy the show, fuck off into the sun. <laughs> you put- can cut that. Oh, Just one more thing to edit. <laughs> Sorry. Fucking hell. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Blooper.